I said the very first week that uh, we're going to have to give about $42 million over the next couple of years. And before that takes your breath away, understand 27 of that is our budget for the next two years. What it costs us just to open the doors at all of our campuses to do what we do locally, to do what we do globally, it's going to cost us that anyway. But the extra 15, 13 of that will go toward our new Apex uh, facility. And then uh, the rest of it pretty much for local and global initiatives. But it's going to cost us something, and that really shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Because you'll remember the very first week, right before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you're going to be my witnesses. And that word witness, when the, when the Bible was translated from Greek to English, that word for witness is also translated in other places in the New Testament, martyrs. So basically, God says, if you're going to be a part of my expanding kingdom, if you're going to help my life-changing message get to the end and the corners of the earth, it's going to cost you something. So this weekend and next weekend, I'm going to talk about how you can be involved here financially to make that happen. And I want to begin this weekend by giving you the mother of all truths when it comes to your money. And by the way, let me just say this. Uh, I'm not really talking about money. And I'm not really talking about your finances. Uh, I'm really talking about your heart. I mean, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So we're going to be talking about your finances, yeah, but we're going to be talking about it as it relates to your heart. And before you decide to get up and leave, or you decide to go on your smartphone and check out your Facebook uh, page, my goal this weekend is not to separate you from your money. So everybody, whew, just exhale, okay? In fact, if you will embrace what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes, you will actually have more money, not less money. And I know that sounds like a trick, but it's true. And the thing is, if you have more money and your finances are more structured, you're going to feel better about giving. And when you give, you're going to feel obedient because now you know as a Christian that you're living and handling your finances the way God wants you to handle your finances. So all I'm asking is that you just be open to what God has to say on this topic. If you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. It's in the Old Testament. It's not an easy book to find. First Chronicles, not to be confused with First Corinthians. And if you can't find it, don't even bother. We'll put the verses up on the side screen. If you have your smartphone, you can get the Get Hope app and you can uh, see all the message notes, the verses that we're going to be look at, looking at. But let me give you a little bit, little bit of a history lesson leading up to First Chronicles chapter 29. Uh, if you've seen the movie, you know that the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. At the end of 430 years, God was like, that's enough. That's enough. And he raises up a leader. He, he raises up Moses to be the deliverer. And Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, I don't think so. And Moses is like, well, enjoy these 10 plagues, right? But by the end of the 10 plagues, Moses is like, uh, Pharaoh's like, Moses, get them out of here. You can't get them out of here fast enough. So Moses, the deliverer, now think about this. When they moved, when Joseph and his family moved to Egypt, it was a family, and that 430 years, it's grown to about two and a half million Jews. So Moses is leading about two and a half million Jews on a backpacking adventure through the Sinai Desert on their way to the Promised Land. But as a result of the Exodus, these Hebrew people, they are now free to worship God for the very first time in their existence. 
And so if you're reading through Exodus, you get to the last 16 chapters, and, and God begins to lay out plans because they've never worshipped God before on how they can worship God. And he lays out plans for a tabernacle. He lays out plans for the Ark of the Covenant. We've all seen the movie. It was this metal, this, this, this golden box with the angels on top. And by the way, let me just ask you this. Who knows what three objects were in the Ark of the Covenant? Do you know? Anybody know? Nobody? Okay, three things. There was a gold jar that contained manna. Manna was the miracle food, the angel food that God sent down from heaven while the Hebrew people were wandering in the desert. Second, there was Aaron's rod that budded. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 17. And then there were the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments. I mean, now you can see why the Germans wanted to find that so bad in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? I would love to have those things in my library. But they were inside the Ark of the Covenant. Understand that it was the Ark of the Covenant, and it's very complicated, and we'll talk about it some other time. That's where God's presence resided. And it was really, really cool because you have a tabernacle, which was basically a tent. You have the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God's presence resided, and they traveled. So wherever the people went, they, if they were going to spend a few days, they could put up the tent. They could worship together because God's presence was right there in the Ark of the Covenant. But just as God promised... Eventually, these Hebrew people, they ended up in the promised land. And even though they have settled into their new homes, they've settled into their new houses. Here's the, God is still living in a tent. Well, about 400 years later, King David, he's walking around and looking out the window of his palatial palace. And he thinks, this is just ridiculous. I had this incredible, you know, 500 room palace to live in. And God is still living in a tent. And all the other nations, I mean, they have beautiful temples for their gods, and they don't even have the one true God. We have the one true God, and he's living in a tent. And every time a dignitary comes from another country, they say, where's, where's the temple for your God? Well, it's embarrassing. Well, our God, he, he's out back in a tent. He's kind of like a backpacking God, you know, type thing. So David decides, listen, I'm going to build a temple for God, and I'm going to put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, and God's presence will have a permanent home. So he starts a capital campaign. Maybe he calls it, let's build God a permanent house, capital campaign. And as he's making all of these plans, God informs David, hey, David, thank you for everything you're doing, but you can't build my temple. And David is like, why not, God? And God says, David, you have blood on your hands. I know that you love me, but David, you are a warrior. And I don't want a warrior to build my temple. But I tell you what I will do. I'll let your son Solomon build it. And instead of being angry, instead of being jealous, instead of being upset, David decides that he's going to dedicate the rest of his life preparing for the construction of the temple. And even though he knows he's never going to see it, he wants to make sure that everything is in place for his son Solomon so that he can pull it off. So he gets the architects and they begin working on the plans. And David goes to work to raise the money to build this temple. And it's in the process of raising the money that David gives us this one principle, he gives us this one truth that I want to pass on to you this weekend that will absolutely revolutionize your finances. So picture this, David gets all the people together so he can give them this big talk and get them all jacked up about building God a permanent home. And this is what it says, 1 Chronicles 29 verse 2, David says, With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God. 
Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. In other words, David says, I reached into the nation's surplus. Now, some of you have no idea what that is, but this is back in the old days when a nation used to have a surplus. He says, I reached into the surplus and I got all the gold. I got all the silver. But notice he doesn't stop there. Verse 3. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God, over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. So he says, as king, I've already tapped into the nation's resources, the nation's wealth. But now I'm tapping into my personal assets. I'm tapping into my 401k, my IRA. I'm cashing in my stock because this is a big deal. And then he asks a question in verse 5. Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? In other words, who wants to join me? Who also wants to be a part of this? Verse 6. Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave Willingly. In other words, all of these people caught the vision of getting God out of a tent, getting him into a permanent home. And verse 6 says, not only did David give generously, all of those in leadership gave generously. And David is so excited about what's going on. It's kind of like a movement that he just kind of breaks out into a prayer beginning in verse 10. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. You know what David's saying there? He says, you know, I may be looking all generous. I may be looking like a big shot by dipping into my personal funds, but it's really no big deal, God, because everything I have, you know and I know, Everything I have is already yours. Verse 13. Now our God, we give thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? David says, what a privilege it is for us to give generously. God, you've dumped stuff on us so we can dump it back on you. Verse 14. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only What comes from your hand. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. In other words, God, we're simply conduits. We're simply managers of what's already yours. And you've chosen us to entrust us with this wealth. You've chosen us to be able to be the people who get to build your temple. You could have chosen anybody, but you chose us. And David says, we are so excited. Now, why was he so excited? Well, he's excited because he understood what we often forget. He understood this principle. Look at this principle coming up. God, here it is, God owns it all. Let me say that again. God owns it all. Let's all say it together whether you believe it or not. Ready? God owns it all. Listen to these verses. God said this in Exodus 19 verse 5. The whole earth is mine. Any questions? You know. How about Psalm 24 verse 1? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 
Job 41 verse 11. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. You see, God owns it all. And right now some of you are starting to squirm a little bit. And this is what you're thinking. Wait a second, Mike. If God owns it all, he's going to expect me to give it all. Nope. You don't have to give it all. That would be irresponsible. If you come to me this week and say, guess what, Mike? I gave away everything I have, and me and my family, we're going to move in with you. You know what I'm going to tell you? You go get some of that money back because you're not going to live with me. That's what I'm going to tell you. See, the lesson in this story isn't to be irresponsible. The lesson that God has for us is this. I'm going to dump a whole bunch of stuff on you, but this is what I want you to remember. It belongs to me. Regardless of what you have, don't ever forget it belongs to me. You don't own any of it. You just manage it. By the way, this isn't a new concept. I mean, when we were growing up, we all had our room. We, what do we call it? That's my room, except me. Uh, I grew up in a two-bedroom house on Austin Avenue. I had two sisters, so they had one bedroom. I had a little twin bed in the bedroom with my parents. That explains a lot of my issues. I mean, let's be honest. And I slept in the bedroom with my parents until I was six. But eventually, eventually, I got what I consider to be my room. We all think we have my room. That's my room. Stay out of my room. Mom, she's in my room, you know. Why does grandma staying in my room? Why do I have to get out of my room? See, it's all about my room. Let me ask you a question. Why could our parents go into our room at any time and go through our stuff? Because at the end of the day, it wasn't our room. See, we just managed the room. And if we didn't manage it well, you know, what would our parents do? They would tell us to do a better job. You get in there and clean out from under that bed and hang up those clothes and empty the trash. And there's, what is wrong with you? And when they would tell us to manage it better, we managed it better. Do you know why? Because it wasn't really our room. It was their room. If you're buying a house, it's another example. You invite someone over to your home. You paint your home. You decorate your home. Miss about three or four mortgage payments. You'll know whose home it really is, right? It's not your home. You say, well, Mike, my mortgage is paid off. Don't pay your property taxes. See who owns your home. See, my point is we already understand this principle. But all of a sudden when we hear God owns it all, we're petrified. And I think what God is saying, listen, this isn't new. I mean, if there's anyone who can legally take what you think is yours, you clearly don't own it. We don't own anything. We don't own rooms. We don't own houses. We don't own property. We're not owners. We're managers. And this verse goes on to say, not only does everything belong to God, but God also distributes as he sees fit, and he doesn't distribute equally. Have you noticed that? That's why as we sit here this weekend, we have different stuff. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I've met some of you that are wealthy. And you and I, we both know you're not that smart. See? <laughs> I mean, I've met people who don't have enough brains to get in out of the rain, and they are absolutely loaded. I want you to know something. It's not necessarily because they're smarter than you or me. I know people who have multiple degrees, MBAs, they're broke. You know why? God says, it's because I give some people high IQs. I give other people street smarts. I give some people, this would be me, the opportunity to marry up. <laughs> I give other people a good head for business. I give some people good looks. The rest of you, you got to get by on your personality. See? 
And you may be sitting here thinking, that's not fair. I got a newsflash for you. God's not fair. He doesn't even pretend to be fair. He distributes all things as he sees fit. And you may not like that, but I'm telling you, it is a reality. Now, why is this so important? It's because when you can embrace this truth, that you're just a manager, that you're not an owner, first of all, you'll stop feeling guilty for all that you have. I mean, if you have a lot and you feel guilty because you have a lot, it's because you think it's yours. But if you've ever worked with a money manager, money managers never feel guilty about the money they're managing. They know it's not theirs. But I guarantee you this, they may not feel guilty, but they feel responsible. And in the same way, when we can get our arms around the fact that we are actually, think about this, managing God's money, I'm telling you, we make different kinds of financial decisions. We become more responsible. And when we become more responsible with God's money, here's the good part. We will actually have more money. Let's do a quick survey, show of hands. How many people would like to have more money? Just raise your hand. How many would like to have a lot more money? Raise both hands. Come on, let's just be honest. See, there's, we, let me tell you, the more responsibly you handle your money, the more you have. And the way to be more responsible is getting to the point where you realize it's not even mine. I am managing somebody else's money. I mean, when you go to see a financial planner, what's the first question they ask you? What are your goals for your money? They don't ever say, thanks for your money. Let me tell you what my goals are for your money. They don't say that. Or they don't say, thanks for letting me manage your money because my wife really needs a new car right now. See, that's, that's, you don't want to hear that. You're going to take your money and put it back in your mattress, right? That's not what they say. They want to know your goals because they realize that they are managing your money. And I tell you what, they probably manage your money more carefully than they manage their own. So when you live this way, you're going to have more money because you're going to be more responsible. But it all begins when we realize it's not really ours to start with. It's his. That means that I want to squeeze as much as I can out of what God has entrusted to me and maybe he'll even entrust me with more. But if you were here last week and it says, I said, it's not about how much we have, you know. The issue is simply this. What are we going to do with what God decides to give us? That's the real issue. And when I begin to understand this truth, I'm just a manager of God's money, I feel grateful. And I act responsibly. And I have more money. And I'm more trustworthy. And in the long run, guess what? I'm going to be better off financially. Now, let me just ask you a question. Imagine how our lives would be different if we really thought this way. I am managing God's stuff. First of all, we would experience contentment. Let me tell you something. We all know this. Spending never brings contentment. Saving never brings contentment. Spending and saving, they're just decisions. Contentment comes when I begin to think like a manager and I can get my arms around the fact that everything I have belongs to God. I mean, can you imagine how our lives would be different if we just began to think this way? First of all, we'd experience contentment. Second, we wouldn't worry as much about money. You see, if I really believe that God gives as well as takes away, <laughs> then if it starts going away, it's not as big a deal, you know? I can't really take credit for having it to start with, so I'm not going to take responsibility for not having it. 
My job is to simply to be a faithful manager. And whatever he gives me, it is my job to manage it for his kingdom. But I don't have to worry. I'm telling you, if we could live this way, we would be better off on the inside. We would be better off on the outside. And that's why you don't have to be afraid of this truth. You can actually embrace this truth. You will be happier because of the financial decisions that you're going to make. Your life is just going to be better. Less stress, more peace. And as an added bonus, you'll end up with more money because you will manage your money more responsibly. Now, I want to give you some homework this week. I want you to pretend for just one week, just one week, I want you to pretend that you manage God's money. For one week, it's not your money, it's God's money. Some of you are like, could we wait till next week? Because I was going to lease a new car this week. Say, so just for one week, okay, I want you to pretend. Now, next, next Monday, you can go back to your chaos. But for one week, I want you to just imagine that you're managing God's money. Two things I want you to do. I want you to pray, God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? Just pray that every day. God, what are your goals? God, how do you want me to manage your money? Because understand, that's what money managers ask. So I want you to pray about what God wants you to do with the money he's given you. And I know what your fear is. You're afraid he's going to tell you to give it all away. He's going to tell me to give it all away. If you feel that way, let me tell you something. It's because you don't trust God. If you feel that way, it's because you don't trust your heavenly Father. Besides, think about it. If God wanted all your money, does he have to wait for you to give it to him? I mean, I mean, think about it. It's already his. Don't you think he can take it if he wants it? It's not wait for you to give it to him. So you don't have to be afraid of this. So I just want you to pray, God, how do you want me to manage your money? Now, here's the second thing I want you to do. I want you to keep track of everything you spend this week. Now, many of you already do this. And usually if you're married, there's one in the family that loves to do this kind of stuff. And then there's somebody like me that's not going to ever do it. But Laura and I have already talked about this. We've got our little, a little tablet of paper. But get a piece of paper, get a tablet. I want you, every time you spend a dollar for a Coke, write it down. Every time you spend $14 for a coffee at Starbucks, just write it down, right? <laughs> but everything, every time you go through the fast food restaurant, just write it down, right? And at the end of the week, you're going to be able to see what you did with God's stuff. I mean, you're going to know it's going to be right there in black and white. And if you're like, whoa, this is just too stressful for me, then pray this prayer. God, I don't really want to manage your stuff. So would you please take it all away? Go right ahead, just pray that, right? And I know you don't want to pray that, right? So this is actually the better option. So for a week, every time you spend something, just write down what you spent. Now, this is interesting about the minor project. There's two reactions to the minor project. Some, it scares you to death and it stresses you out, right? Because I got $10 and they expect me to do something with it, right? We found them in the bathrooms, in stall three, behind the toilet tank. People dropped them off at the coffee shop. Like, oh, no, I, that's just too much stress. But you know what? The other reaction was joy, excitement, anticipation about what they were going to do and how God was going to bless. I'm telling you the difference is there are people who already understand God owns it all. Let me tell you something. If the minor project stressed you out that much, you're, there's a big disconnect in your life 
about your stuff. So I want you to do it just for a week. Pray, God, how do you want me to manage your stuff? And second, keep a record of where every dollar goes. And by the end of the week, you evaluate. And this is going to be your response. I guarantee it. Wow, this was really helpful. So just for one week, like I said, next Monday, you can go back to your same old habit. But for just one week, would you act like you're a manager? Would you pretend that you're a manager just for a week? And I can tell you what you're going to discover. This is what you're going to discover. I actually have the money to be a person of generosity. You're going to discover, I actually have the money to engage financially in God's kingdom. It's in my bank account. I've just got to start managing God's money differently. Now, I'm just going to tell you something right now. And this is where, this is just me, so don't be angry, but go ahead and send me emails. (laughs) If you can afford things like season seats to football games and hurricane games and But you can't afford to engage financially in God's kingdom. You can't afford those seats. If you can afford to eat out five nights a week, but you don't have the money to engage financially in God's kingdom, you can't afford that. Now I'm going to step on some toes. If you can afford a vacation home, but you can't afford to tithe and be involved financially, you can't afford that vacation home. If you're a member of the country club and you love to play golf two or three times a week, but you can't afford to engage financially in God's kingdom, I'm just telling you right now, you can't afford to be a member of that country club. If your kids are in private school, I feel like Jerry, Jerry Fox, Foxworthy, what's his name? Jeff Foxworthy now, right? You might be a redneck. Say, you might be handling God's money wrong, you know. If your kids are in a private school, but you can't afford financially to engage in the kingdom of God, You can't afford for those kids to go to a private school. So I'm just asking you, go through this process. What you're going to realize is you've got the money. you just got to decide what kind of choices you're going to make when it comes to managing God's money. Now, I want to close by giving you a simple object lesson as to how you can engage financially here at Hope with the money that you're managing. Because if you're going to get involved, you need a plan. This is what is called the giving ladder. And uh, this is kind of going to show you the process of becoming a generous giver. And let me just say this. Every church has people at different stages, different places of becoming generous. And let me just, if you're down here, this is financial stress. As you get up here, you're going to be experiencing financial peace and freedom. But you got to get up here. I think most of us would like financial peace and freedom. So let me just give it to you. Here's the first step of becoming a generous giver. Give for the first time. Many of you here at Hope, you're here because Hope has impacted you. It's impacted your children. I hear stories all the time. I get the emails. And one of the, the highlights of my life is running into people. I ran into a guy today. He was helping my son move. He stopped by the house to move stuff out of my garage. Hallelujah, praise God, I'm coming home. But anyway, you know, but it was a beautiful thing. But anyway, I was just talking to him about how God has absolutely just rocked his world and changed his life through Hope Community Church. And many of you, you would have that same story, but you've never engaged financially. I would encourage you, at least give for the first time. And understand, when when you give for the first time, this is not a financial decision. 
This is a spiritual decision. This is a big deal. What you're saying is this. I am going to begin to engage financially in the kingdom of God. I went to our finance office this week and I said, how many people have given for the first time since September the 1st, over the last 60 days? 132 people engaged and gave for the first time. I think that's incredible. So if you've never given, this could be your weekend, but give for the first time. The next one is become an occasional giver. You're not ready to give weekly and monthly, and you're not ready to set up an automatic draft, but, you know, you'll, you'll give occasionally. Maybe you get a little bonus. Maybe you come across some money you weren't expecting. Maybe there's, there's something that goes out. There's some kind of plea. We present something about orphans, and it just touches your heart. You give occasionally, and it's not really a plan yet, okay? But at least you're moving in the right direction. So give for the first time, and then the next step would be give occasionally, and then third would be Become an intentional giver. And when you become an intentional giver, basically you're asking this question. What portion of what God has given me financially do I want to invest back at church? Do I want to invest back in his kingdom? And maybe it's a fixed amount. Maybe you decide, I can, a hundred bucks, that's going to be a big stretch for me. Maybe it's going to be a hundred bucks a month or a hundred bucks a week or a thousand bucks a month. Whatever it is, maybe it's going to be a percentage. You're not buying into the tithe thing yet, but maybe it's a two percent or four percent. Maybe it's five percent. But you become an intentional giver and you're giving in an intentional way. The next step would be start tithing. And I got to tell you, This is when you start experiencing peace in your finances because you realize that you're actually doing your financial world the way God set up for you. And he set it up very good, even for those who aren't good in math. Whatever you have, take off the zero and give that. If you got a hundred, take off a zero, give ten. If you got a thousand, take if you got a million, whoo, that's awesome. Take off a zero and give me a hundred thousand. You know what I'm saying? But anyway. That's, you're just going to find financial peace. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is something my parents taught me tithing when I was little, and it wasn't a big deal when you're making a dime and you got to give a penny. But all of a sudden, when you start making money, it's an issue. So this is what someone taught me when I was really young. The key is learning to live off 90%. See, many of us, we, we live at the limit all the time. And even when we get a raise, what do we do? We up our lifestyle to the limit. At some point, you've got to learn to live within that 90%. Now, for some, this is a big deal to get here. And many of you, you're on a journey to get there. And I've talked to people that started off at 3% and 5%, and they got off out of debt, and they they got rid of other financial responsibilities, and it took them a while to get there. For other people, they, they see this as the finish line. I mean, you may be sitting here this weekend. You've been giving 10% for years. You don't even miss it anymore, right? But you've never increased, so there's actually one more step, and the last step is this. You become an abundant giver, an extravagant giver. What do I mean by that? Well, when you get to this level, you start asking questions like, God, not how much do you want me to give? God, how much do you want me to keep to live on? Because we're always going to make money and our lifestyle is always going to go. So we have to ask ourselves, when is enough enough? God, I live a very comfortable lifestyle and everything you give me after this point, I'm going to give back to you. And there are a lot of people that live that way. Now, as we're going into the Unleashed campaign, Laura and I have done what I've asked you guys to do. 
We prayed, and then we sat down, and we looked at our finances, and we looked at everything. And, and Laura said, you pray about it, I'll pray about it. And we finally got together in the summer when we were, we were going to this campaign. And as we looked at our budget, the decision we made, because as you saw in First Chronicles 29, I believe that leaders lead by example. We figured out, and we're very generous to hope already, but we figured out we could double what we were given to hope. And yeah, it's going to cost us some things. And there'll be some things we don't do that we would normally do. We don't even go near a mall right now. We just kind of stay away from it. Like, we got enough clothes. We'll get through, right? And there's vacations that we won't be taking. But we looked out over the next two years and we thought, you know what? We can do this. We could actually double what we've been given. And this is what's interesting. There's a sense of excitement and joy. And we realize, well, wait a minute. If we can double it now, even when this two-year period is over, why would we stop? Why wouldn't we continue and expand it even more? Let me tell you something. Generosity is something that God wants for you. It's not something that he wants from you. you got to remember that. It will bring you joy, and it will bring you peace. Now, you're going to get a commitment card, and I'll go over it next week, and we're going to be asking you, what do you, would you make a commitment? What do you think you could commit to hope over the next 24 months, over the next two years? And I'm just going to tell you something. Most, most of us, if we just took the next step up the ladder, those who have never given, if they started giving, if people gave occasionally, if people became intentional, if people began to tithe, if people became abundant, I'm telling you, 42 million is almost a joke because that's what we should be giving as a church this size based on the national average, to be honest with you. So it really isn't a stretch. But here's the thing, and I'll say more about this next week. One day you'll look back, and when you're hearing all the life change stories that are coming, not only out of Apex, but Raleigh and Mooresville, and as we expand maybe in the future, and the, the, the things that we're investing in locally and globally, as you hear those stories, there'll be a part of you that says, yeah. And I got to be a part of that. So next week when we get together, I'm going to talk to you about, so how do you go through the process of deciding what you're going to do financially for the kingdom of God? And I'm basically going to give you three different stories from Scripture. And you will fall into one of them. But I want to show you the blessings regardless of what you have. It's not what you have. It's what you decide to do with what God has given you. So we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be involved. And I know, I know, people think, Give, you just want our money, you just want this, you want that. And it's, Father, well, we need it to build your kingdom. You said it was going to cost us something, so we don't apologize for that. And Father, we take great pride in how we manage your money here at Hope and the many eyes that are on it and make sure that it's being spent the way you would have us spend it. But Father, the, 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 the key here is the blessing and the joy we get because we're handling our finances your way. And, and, and the incredible financial peace and freedom that comes when we're obedient to you. This is really just practical, common, financial sense. We're not managing our stuff. We're managing yours. How do you want us to manage your stuff? And how are we managing your stuff? Give us clarity and give us the guts to go through this process. And Father, I believe that you're going to change us and you're going to transform our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.